News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Well, Sean Pesh is joining us tonight as our guest co-host. Uh, he's with Ranmore Fund Management. Sean, nice to have you here, uh, given that you are based so far away across oceans. Uh, but technology means it's like you right here in the studio, in our virtual studio indeed. Well, thank you, Alex. Thanks very much for uh, for the invite. Good to be here and to, to see you all. The and last Chris again from so many years ago. Chris, Chris <laughs> yeah. Logan. Yeah. Well, you've just spoiled uh, my thunder or uh, taken away the the uh, the headline act tonight. Chris Logan. Chris, I, I know I didn't. I'm going to spring this on you now, but I'm getting good uh, news, good reports coming out of Zimbabwe now. If Zimbabwe comes right. And it's still a big if, although the the the, the insight we're getting is is good. Uh, what would that mean for Tonga Hewlett? Put that in the back of your mind. You know Tonga Hewlett's terribly well, and uh, we'll be talking about that. But tonight we actually asked you to t- uh, tell us more about Zach Callisto and some poor person who didn't listen to the show and then lost twelve million rons at the first trade this morning on the JSC. Yes, sure, Alec. Um, it's actually worse than you set out um, because the poor sellers this morning who sold at 59 Rand, not realizing there's a 10 for 1 consolidation, not only did they sell it at a 10th of the price that they should have, but they didn't realize that they only had a 10th of the shares that they thought they had. Ouch. So, you know, as things presently stand, it, it, it means they got to buy, you know, they sold 10,000 shares at 59 Rand. They've got to go and buy 9,000 shares back at 500 Rand now. So it really is a bit of a calamity. Wow. Well, we'll hear more from Zach Callisto. Jackie had a lengthy interview with him today. That's up already on Biz News Radio. If uh, you want to listen to the interview at some point in time, it's, uh, it's really interesting. Uh, here's what the Portuguese community call a Coca-Cola. Do you know what a Coca-Cola is? No? Someone no. who comes from Mozambique. The Portuguese community, according to my neighbor, uh, Manny de Canha, is very uh, a stratosphere and the people who come from Portugal, they called something. The people who come from Madeira, which is where Manny comes from, are called something. And then the people who come from Mozambique are called Coca-Colas. And I think it's because they drink the alcohol, wine and Coca-Cola, because apparently the wine that they have from Mozambique is so bad, you have to put it together with Coca-Cola and call it Katembas. That's that's Manny's story, and, and I'm just passing it on for what it's worth. Also tonight, we're going to be speaking with Jean-Pierre Fester. Uh, he knows all about making money from stock market short selling. He, remember, was the man who very famously made 100 million rand uh, by selling African Bank before the collapse. Kevin Lings, the chief economist at Stan Lib, we're talking inflation with us. Kevin's one of the few economists I know to actually make these highly unintelligible and very complex numbers, uh, the big economy issues, uh, understandable to us lesser mortals. And then we'll also be talking with Chris Yelland. He's got a beef with the new power ships that are going to be parked off your side of the uh, of the world, Chris, uh, off the Cape Coast. I'm not sure if you've been following that, but it looks like we're going to be doing another BHP Billiton hillside deal. Do you remember that where uh, Eskom signed a deal with BHP Billiton to provide power to their aluminium smelters? And it looked good to begin with, but eventually it became an absolute disaster because of the changes in the marketplace over a number of years. Yes, uh, you know, I track Eskim. I, I did an analysis of it about 10 years ago when it started going prot, and I kept in touch, and it's just one debacle to the next. Yeah, they, 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 some people are saying, well, Eskim has only been badly managed recently during the Zuma era. Mm, I'm afraid it, it, it started... A long time before that. The poor management did. 
the the uh, plundering, of course, uh, only began when the Guptas got their uh, fingers into the Eskom pie. But we'll be talking about all of that in a moment. First up, let's hear from our editor-at-large, Jackie Cameron, with today's news flash briefing. South Africa's headline consumer price inflation has not risen as quickly as analysts have forecast. It rose to 3.2% year-on-year in March from 2.9% in February. That's according to data from Statistics South Africa. Core inflation, which excludes prices of food, non-alcoholic beverages, fuel and energy, was at 2.5% year-on-year in March from 2.6% previously. South Africa is home to over twice as many millionaires as any other African country. Despite this, the total private wealth held in the country declined by 25% between 2010 and 2020. This is according to the Africa Wealth Report 2021, published this week by Johannesburg-based wealth intelligence firm New World Wealth, together with Mauritius-based AfroAsia Bank. The report notes that Mauritius is the wealthiest country in Africa in terms of average wealth per person, The World Bank officially classified Mauritius as a high-income country in July 2020, says the report's author Andrew Amoyles. He says that total wealth held in Africa has fallen by 16% over the past decade when measured in U.S. dollar terms. Africa's performance has been constrained by poor performance in the three largest African markets, South Africa, Egypt and Nigeria. But Amoyles says that total private wealth held in Africa is expected to rise by 30% over the next 10 years. This growth will be driven by strong growth in the billionaire and centimillionaire segments, especially in fast-growing economies such as Ethiopia, Mauritius, Rwanda, Kenya and Uganda, says the report. The South African government decision to include three liquid natural gas powerships from Car Powership SA for emergency power is a mistake which will cost South Africa dearly in the long run. This is the view of energy expert Chris Yelland. He says that all the liquid gas will need to be imported, which carries a lot of financial risk for the country. The fuel cost is linked to the U.S. dollar price for liquefied natural gas, which means that the U.S. dollar rand exchange rate can significantly influence the future cost. He adds that South Africa will never own the power ships. Zimbabwe plans to sell the right to shoot as many as 500 elephants for as much as 70,000 U.S. dollars, or 1 million rand per animal. This is to help fund the upkeep of its national parks, it says. The hunting season, which takes place over the Southern Hemisphere winter, will resume this year after the coronavirus pandemic scuppered plans to have elephants shot by foreign tourists in 2020. Bloomberg notes that Zimbabwe has the world's second biggest elephant population and neighbouring Botswana has the largest. Both have been criticised by environmental groups for their plans to profit from elephant hunting. Botswana is resuming hunting after a five-year ban. Zambia and Namibia also have substantial elephant populations. And that was your Business Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for Business. You can find more on those and the other main stories of the day at businessradio.com. Brightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movements in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you. By Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Justin Rowe Roberts has been watching the markets. The JSE All Share Index was slightly in the green at 67,100. The highlights included Sassel up 8 rand to 233 rand a share on the back of stronger oil prices. Implat surged 5% higher to 293 rand as precious metals producers were up across the board. Naspers and Process were both down on the day to 3,400 and 1,560 rand a share respectively, as Tencent fell 2.2% in Hong Kong this morning. In the US, earnings season is well underway, with Netflix reporting after the bell yesterday. The share is down over 7% after the company predicts its worst quarter for streaming growth in its history, with the reopening trade continuing to gather momentum. In the currency markets, the rand was flat against all the major currencies, to 14 rand 23 cents to the dollar. 19 rand 83 cents to the sterling and 17 rand 12 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,791 an ounce. Brent crude is trading at $66 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back a shade under 800k Bitcoin. And this market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, Sean Pesh, I've been dying to ask you this question in public. We've seen your negativity about NASPAS for a while, and you, I think last time we spoke, you said it was priced for perfection. Well, the perfection of Tencent is no longer there. The Chinese authorities are having a full go at that company, and NASPAS's share price has really been under the cosh in the most recent times, despite a very heavy share buyback scheme. Remember, they got $5 billion that they're allocating to buy back their own shares, which ordinarily would push the share price up. So I guess, are you feeling a little justified at this point? Well, Alec, I mean, it's, you know, to be honest, we, we don't own NASPAS or Tencent. So um, you know, my big concern has been for the South African savings industry because it is such a large percentage in that. And I was interested to listen to um, your show, we watched your show last night uh, and listening to Pete Mouton talking about the complexities and the tax changes and the unbundling. And I think, unfortunately, NASPERS have painted themselves into a corner by saying, well, we're not going to sell these uh, 10 cent shares for one process for the next three years. Uh, and now this unbundling takes that angle away from it. It's a very costly alternative. So what are they going to do? And I think the, the risk is, um, you know, the risk is you can't take on a superpower. Uh, we've seen that with Russia, okay? When UCOS got on the wrong side of, of Russia, it ended up in, with bankrupt stripped, you know, and, and all the other Russian stocks ended up at five times earnings. And if you look at the Asian Pacific Index versus the World Index, it's been underperforming this year. And I think largely because of uh, people are concerned as to what China is going to do to these companies. I think I'm right in saying that people have seen J- um, Jack Ma for 48 seconds since October. You know, there was that one clip, and that's it. So, you know, this is what you're dealing with. And, um, and I'm very concerned that, that you know, good, they're just not taking the profits. They've, they've painted themselves into a corner. And who knows where 10 cents is going to go, to be honest. I mean, who knows? It's no longer, I would, I would take issue with the fact that it was a fantastic business, okay, with the gaming and all the rest. But these days, it's largely a venture capital company. I mean, they've got hundreds of stakes, in t- tiny stakes in little Chinese businesses. Um, many of which actually transact with Tencent, which makes it very complicated from from an analysis perspective. And so actually I would go as far as to say it's unanalyzable. Okay, not, un- I mean, I'm not, not uninvestable, but it's unanalyzable because if you look at, um, if you look at their balance sheets, you know, such a large percentage of that, of the equity now is tied up in other assets, which is, stakes in MySun and JD.com and hundreds of these little things, all of which, well, many of which, certainly the listed ones, they all transact with, uh, with Tencent. But because they have a minority interest in them, the, um, the, the income and expense don't beat each other up. So this is going to get a little bit complicated. But if I own 100% of another company and I transact with that company, uh, it's, you know, my income is an expense in that company and one consolidation bets out. If I have a minority stake in another business and that company buys services from me, it's income for me and an expense for them. But because I don't net them out on consolidation, okay, um, you know, it's, it's a factor. And so that's what's been going on. So I think it's very, it's very difficult to analyze that company. And I think now you've got a political risk. I mean, you know, who knows? Sean, in other words, you would not be holding, you certainly wouldn't be buying NASPERS, but what if you held it already and you had a, Significant tax uh, tax problem. If you were to sell the shares now, would you would you take it on the chin and, and get out? Look, I think um, to be honest, I think the worst decision you could ever make is to not sell something because of tax. And if you look at you know South Africa, I mean, if we went into business together, Alec, and I could take whatever I wanted as a share of our profits, you and me, okay? And I said, I'll tell you what, Alec, you take eighty two percent, and I'll only take eighteen. I mean, that's an amazing deal. And so actually when, um, when, when people say, well, they don't want to sell it because of tax, and I look at it and I go, capital gains tax is, I think, a maximum of 18% in South Africa. That means you get to keep 82% of the gains. And so you don't want to sell it because of the 18% you're going to sell. I think it's crazy. Sean so, Pesh, and we'll yeah. be talking more with Sean as the program goes through. He is our guest co-host tonight. But let's pick up now on a South African entrepreneur who's been closely followed 
by our other guest who's uh, in the virtual studio, Chris Logan. Uh, this is a fellow called Jack Callisto. He's the chief executive of a business that used to be known as Car Track, is now known as Carew. Jackie Cameron, our editor at large, has done a lengthy interview with him, which you'll find on biznewsradio.com. But we pulled this little clip out for you uh, to just give you a taste and then to give Chris something to talk about. Well, it's, first of all, I am South African and I love the Karoo. So uh, when I externalized my shares in about approximately two years ago, I formed a company in Singapore called Karoo to hold my shares. Uh, when I was then looking at all this corporate action that we did, you know, and uh, uh, after that, uh, you know, we applied with all the relevant authorities, we, the only way we could have done this transaction is through me doing a buyback of the minority shareholders. At that point in time, uh, it was very important to get Karoo.com. And uh, the owner of Karoo.com just wouldn't give it to me at a reasonable price. He was asking for a million dollars. It's it's someone in America. At that point in time, we said, okay, does it really make a difference whether it's got Karoo with three zeros, four zeros, five zeros? It's just a name. And uh, we didn't want to do a name change. And so we, we went Karoo with five zeros and registered Karoo with three zeros to nine zeros.com. So all those domains belong to us, which allows uh, people to get our name wrong and still come to, to uh, still land up uh, at the right website. Do you find yourself thinking about your business all the time? Are you obsessed with it? Um, well, I think fundamentally everybody's obsessed with something or another. And, uh, you know, people talk about a balanced life. I certainly believe I have got a balanced life. I work, I enjoy family, I enjoy friends, I, uh, I enjoy life. And uh, I could be working at 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, but I could also be having, a, you know, uh, a lunch at 10 o'clock in the morning. So for me, you just live, and I wasn't designed to, at 5 o'clock you knock off, and at 8 o'clock you get to work. So some days I'll get to work at 7 in the morning, other days I might get to work at 11 in the morning. So, you know, I just live. And I enjoy every aspect of life. And work is obviously a big uh, driver. And uh, I live to improve the business. You mentioned you get rid of Deadwood. Would you describe yourself as a ruthless employer? You know, the word ruthless, it depends on how one describes ruthless. So when I say, we, you know, Deadwood, when we find somebody doesn't fit our culture or is not interested in the business, then we, you know, there's clearly a, a better, a better company suited for them to go work at, if that makes sense. But clearly, we're very compassionate. We have a lot of compassion for our staff. We're very understanding. We drive a tremendous amount of compassion, understanding of our staff. But we certainly don't allow people to come work for us and play politics all day long, and be destructive and. Uh, uh, create the wrong groups and we don't tolerate that type of thing and it's you know that's what I call dead with which you start having people in businesses sh- paper shuffling and hiding behind their screens their computer playing computer uh, computer games every day and uh, you know there's a lot of the companies that have that type of thing so we don't really entertain that type of behavior and now having said that I certainly don't believe that makes us ruthless in any way how do you actually hire people? Do you have specific, unique ways of doing that? Um, you know, recruiting is a very difficult, um, very difficult and very challenging way of, uh, you know, to grow a business. It's not. A, we certainly don't believe that we've got it right. We certainly have great teams, but it takes. You know, we're getting better at it, but. Uh, we focus on, uh, you know, two or three people, uh, you know, doing the interviews. We've put a lot of focus on training, and it's it, it's it's difficult to get good people. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're in South Africa, whether you're in Asia, whether you're in Europe. Uh, but we've we've built a great team. We over three thousand employees at this point in time. Uh, I don't believe you can grow a business with three thousand employees if you're not compassionate and understanding of everybody's needs and you've got to be remain extremely human uh, when dealing uh, with people if that makes any sense so but you know and without the people you're not you're not going to have a business so remaining uh, human is key 
There's a whole lot more where that came from. Go into businessradio.com. Chris, uh, you're a big fan of Zach Callisto's. Yes, absolutely. Um, I've had the good fortune to get to know Zach reasonably well as an analyst. And he's a true entrepreneur. And by that, I mean, you can send him an email uh, and it turns, you know, it's whatever time in South Africa and it's two o'clock in Singapore. And surprise, surprise, two minutes later, you get a reply. He's one of those rare hands-on guys. You know, it's like dealing with a woman from the old days. Um, and he is pretty unique in his skill set. You know, he, he, he's very softly spoken. He's not an aggressive A-type personality, but he, he's on top of everything. And um, if he doesn't know something, he'll tell you, and then he'll come back to you once he's found it out. I, I really think he's an outstanding entrepreneur and business builder. Sounds a bit like he is the uh, epitome of Collins's books on Good to Great and Built to Last. Remember where he went back and he got a, a group of students, Jim Collins, and they analyzed the best performing companies over a number of decades. And they came up with the ideal CEO. And that person was not a type personality. In fact, it was somebody who we didn't even have, have never really heard of. It was someone who was below the radar, who understood the detail, who was hands on, who was enthralled by the business that they were working in. And from what you've told us now, if Jim Collins were to have a look at Zach Callisto, he would probably say, yeah, this guy qualifies. I'm not sure that he's, he's performed as well as those companies had, but it is counterintuitive. You would almost think that the best performing CEOs would be those that we always see on the front covers of magazines, or well, no longer magazines, but in, on, on uh, uh, the ones who've got the big PR machines who push them forward. Uh, Zach, we'd never heard of him until he decided to do this transaction in, on NASDAQ. Sure. He is atypical. Um, you know, he, he, he cooks lunch for his uh, staff. You know, I haven't heard of that before. Certainly not something I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> Justin's yeah, looking I, at me and saying, hey, what about, what's your problem? <laughs> Better than Russian and chips, eh? We, we are lucky if Alex's wife, Jeanette, brings lunch, but that's as far as it goes. Alex certainly not doing any cooking himself. And, um, yeah, what's very interesting, Alec, he's got uh, three of his uh, children are in the business now, and I've tracked through. I mean, they all... Done exceptionally well. His daughter's now chief marketing and chief revenue officer. And I've gone and looked on her LinkedIn profile and learned an incredible amount just by doing that. Um, so, yeah, it's quite a unique combination. Um, but the one thing that does stand out, as I said, I see JPs there. I see a lot of similarities between Cartrack and Capitec. Um, in terms of the growth rates, in terms of that focus on the customer and the low-cost model. You know, Justin pointed out that Zach probably only paid himself $3.8 million last year because he's got 67% of the shares, which is true. But I responded by saying his CFO, who has no shares, is similarly underpaid compared to his counterpart at Mix. That low-cost culture is a huge enabler um, in a variety of ways. And, you know, um, perhaps JP could um, come in here, but if you low cost, it opens up a world of greater opportunities. You know, that's certainly been my experience with a Capitec and a, and a, and a Cartrack. You've refer referred to Jean-Pierre Fester, uh, who is joining us now to talk about pick and pay. But before we do that, Jean-Pierre, the point that Chris made about Capitec, you're very involved. Are you on the board at Capitec still? Yes, Alex. So I used to look at Capitec from the outside. And since 2015, I get a bit more uh, insights from the inside as chairman of the audit committee and a board member, correct? Uh, that's extraordinary, actually, from being a, a critic, I guess, because you were looking in to somebody who's now in the, in the beast itself. 
Is, is Chris reading it correctly? Because clearly from your both positions that you've been in with Capitec, you would be able to say whether he's, uh, he's actually got the, the right story there. Sure. I, I do agree that there's a lot of similarities in terms of the growth and the cost-conscious co- uh, culture. Um, I do believe at this point in Cartrack's uh, life cycle, it's maybe a little bit more uh, reliant on Zach Alisto as a person. Um, I've met him a few times, and I think he drives that business very hard as an individual. And his personal culture has fed into the culture of the business, which is maybe slightly different to Capitec, which was less about any one individual. Uh, but yes, the growth and the cost-conscious culture and the focus on doing the best for the customer is something that a lot of companies has used very successfully to grow um, not only their own profits, but also grow value for their clients. Well. That customer obsession is, if you just follow the Amazon story, you've got to apply it in your own business because you can see what it's done for Jeff Bezos and how that business has, has just mushroomed. It's a, it, I, I don't know what, what car track's like, but I do know that Capitec customers love the bank. Now, that's unusual uh, to have people who love their bank. But Capitec cars, customers, they really do. Uh, I'm not sure, Chris, maybe CarTrack customers love CarTrack as well. But it is a, a, a wonderful uh, position to be in when your customers realize that you are really there to serve them. And many people have this as lip service, but very few actually achieve it. Yeah, I've certainly gained that impression, and it's in all his literature. You know, if you if you look at that wonderful founder's letter of Zach's, the first thing is customer first. Um, and, you know, you've got to think, how did a, you know, an, uh, someone who fled the Mozambique revolution build up what he's built with very little backing? Um he obviously, and I think he does have that ER where you can connect with people and customers, but you don't go and eclipse long-standing competitors like uh, NetStar and Mix unless you get it right with your customers, particularly when you've got very little capital, you know. So, yeah. Sean, Sean Pesh, do you have uh, other examples apart from Amazon? I hope you're an Amazon fan, given uh, the way I've been uh, gushing about Jeff Bezos, uh, of a similar kind of a situation where customer focus has delivered uh, excellent returns for shareholders. Alec, um, I mean, it's interesting listening to, I don't know, Zach, and but what a fascinating story. I mean, you know, escaping... Mozambique and building up this business and listing internationally. It's wonderful. And, uh, and all credit to him. I mean, look, I read a lot of conference call transcripts and I was reading the Netflix one last night and, and I'm sorry, this morning. And they, they talk about Reed Hastings. I think is an incredible person. You know, what a, what a remarkable business person. Because if you recall, Netflix originally was, was, you know, you posted the DVDs back. So they just eclipsed Blockbuster and said, okay, well, we're not going to, the difference between us and Blockbuster is we're not going to charge you the fines for bringing back your videos late, which irritated everybody. You know, you watch a great movie and then you forget about taking it back to the video store and the next thing you've got the huge fine. And that was the angle. So you can see that, um, you know, and then they, they, they made such a huge success having pivoted their business in terms of the internet and uh, streaming model. But his thing is keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing wasn't, wasn't posting videos back. The main thing was entertaining the customer. And so, you know, yeah, so I guess that's, that's probably quite a good example. I'll give, you um, a, I'll give you a tip in South Africa of a company who's recently started, who's doing the same thing, and that's Giron Novik's new airline Lyft. What they've yeah. done, they abolished cancellation fees. And it's the most ridiculous okay. thing. You could have a death in the family or something that is completely beyond your control. But airlines say tough luck pay up, whereas Lyft says we don't ever charge cancellation fees. Uh, but but that's, a, that's a story for another day. Uh, Jean-Pierre, just to get back to the other similarity here, Chris was telling us that in Karoo, there are a number of Zach Callisto's family members. Now, if you think about the most successful family business in South Africa over many decades, it has to be Raymond Uckerman's business or pick and pay. They came out with financial results today. 
Uh, they've got a new chief executive coming in. The CEO that they brought in from abroad uh, did very well. So they've repeated the story, bringing in another CEO from abroad. Uh, what's your reading of the way that pick and pay is going? You know, if, if Raymond Ackerman does get to 100, is he going to look back uh, on, the, on the next 10 years and say, well, uh, we made another good call by bringing in the new CEO? Mm, yes, and uh, if, if we look back to the last 10 years between Raymond Ackerman's ages of 80 and 90, I think Richard Brasher has done a very good job. If we take ourselves back to when he joined roughly eight years ago, he can pay a lot of balls in the air. They were doing a lot of things at the same time. They just launched the Smart Shopper program. They were sorting out their franchisees. They were moving towards central distribution. They were expanding into Nigeria. They launched a new own label. And it was actually too much at the same time. Richard Brasher came in and sort of over eight years, slowly but surely and systematically addressed all these issues, sorted them out, fixed the business, I think one can say, and he's, he's ended and bowed out on a high. Uh, this is a very good result from Pick and Pay. Uh, the, the, the headline earnings per share are down more than 20% on a reported basis and down 16% on a comparable basis and down 6% on an adjusted basis. There's a lot of adjustments. The last adjustment is for hyperinflation in Zimbabwe and the effect of visas. So there's a few numbers to look at. And normally if your profits are down, let's, let's pick one of these minus 6%, the, the most flattering one. You wouldn't say it's a strong result, but this is a strong result in the context of COVID and the significant negative impact on the sales of tobacco and alcohol. So a very good result. And if we look 10 years forward, uh, Mr. Boer coming in, uh, as you say, another foreigner, if you can take this one step further and take the baton from Richard Brasher, um, I think there's a good chance that on this very strong platform and foundation, you can build for the next decade in, in pick and pay stock. Do you know much about the new CEO? No, in the presentation, he did introduce himself. He went through his background, so he clearly has got a lot of experience in retail and in emerging market retail as well. So one can probably describe him as a safe pair of hands, and he's not coming in to fix a business, as was the case with Richard Brasher. So I think the market will probably look at his appointment positively. It seems like that has been the case up until now. Um, so it, it, a lot of foreign investors or foreign CEOs have come into the South African retail space in particular. Um, if you think about uh, Massmart with Mitch Slate, for instance, uh, you think about um, uh, Ian Moore, who was at Willys and only recently bowed out. Um, so it's been very interesting to see how many foreign CEOs we have specifically in the retail space. And they haven't always worked, but Pick and Pay at least uh, has had a good foreign uh, CEO pick before, and hopefully the second one will be as well. And it's quite uh, in the news at the moment, given that Daniel Mamnele uh, of ABSA only lasted 16 months after a whole year of them having to wait for him. So I guess we need to be uh, mindful that the chemistry is not always the same. However, the way you've described it, being a safe pair of hands, it sounds like he'll just continue with or is, would be happy to continue with the work that Richard Brash has already uh, done. I, that's my expectation as well. And I think the one thing about retail is it's a relatively simple business. You know, you buy stuff and you, you sell it for a better price that, and you just make sure you, you cover your costs. Um, and I, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, I'm sure. Um, but given that it means that we have seen executives going to different countries and apply good retail principles and being successful CEOs, maybe more so than a lot of other industries. Um, so I do expect that he'll, he'll do well, and we'll need to wait and see if he makes any major changes. Once again, if I look at another CEO, when, when Peter Engelbrecht came in and took over from Whitey Basson, it took him, call it, two years to, to really look into the business, even though he had been in the ShopRite business for a number of years. And then he said, we're going to exit a, a bunch of African countries that we've been in for 10 years. So uh, I think a CEO always has that prerogative to make big changes. Uh, they should just hopefully do so and take the whole executive team with them uh, for that to be successful. Jean-Pierre, we're hearing uh, both local and offshore fund managers concerned about where valuations are pretty much across the board and fund managers wanting to own the best companies in those respective sectors. 
the food retail sector in, on the JSC obviously contains a few big hitters. Who's your, who's your pick there? So in broad terms, we see some value in the South African retail sector. Uh, it's it's not, I would say, as attractive as a lot of other sectors. And I'm, I'm sure you've spoken about the specific value in the small cap space across a number of industries that we've seen in the last six months. Um, currently in the South African retail sector, our preference is Willys, Woolworths. Um, they have been the best performing retail share or food retail share the last year, but the worst one the last five years, and mostly because of David Jones. So now that they've sort of sorted out the Australian balance sheet and decoupled uh, Country Road from David Jones, uh, that is our preference. And it's probably, if it, if it was only the Willie's food business listed on its own, it would probably be the best performing food businesses on the JC. That is a wonderful business. Mm. So now that they've sorted out the rest of the business, and maybe the clothing business needs a bit more work, uh, that is our pick in the retail sector. Uh, secondly, would probably be Spa. That is the, the probably the steadiest of the food retailers. Slightly different model, more the guild model which is close to being a franchise operator. So it makes the business model slightly more stable. And then only the likes of Big and Play and Shopper. Jean-Pierre, you mentioned briefly, and I'm, I'm going to bring Chris Logan in now, uh, the hyperinflation in Zimbabwe. Now, my uh, understanding is inflation in Zimbabwe is very much under control. Talking about, it's about 2% a month now. So we've, it's, it's almost like it was a basket case and we stopped watching the basket. But the basket does appear to be uh, replaced by something a whole lot more positive. So I'd, I'd love to get your, your thoughts on what it means for pick and pay. Obviously, Zimbabwe is very small relative, uh, in pick and pay's life. But Chris, you were the, uh, one of the arch critics of Tongard Hewlett. And Tongard Hewlett mm. invested massively in Zimbabwe. If Zimbabwe mm. comes right, would that not be a reason to be buying the Tongard Hewlett shares, which are they still got upside in them in the normal course of affairs with the turnaround that's happening there. Without doubt, Alec. Um, you know, and I, I'm very impressed, as you know, by the new Tongart management. So, look, it would be huge if Zimbabwe came right. But, you know, proof of the pudding there is in the eating. These... Um, these countries tend to consistently let one down. So I, I hope you're right about these green shoots. Okay, but, but, but it's an optionality then. So let's just say good. If you, want, you want a nice uh, – where else do you get an option on a Zimbabwe turnaround as big an option? Yeah, I mean, I'd be prepared to buy Tongot now, you know, uh, not based on the view that um, Zimbabwe is going to come right. Um, just with the work that's being done. So it's almost like you've, you've got the base already. You yes. will see an improvement yes. from there. But if Zimbabwe yes. comes right, that'll be a massive swing factor. Jean-Pierre, do you know much about, about the Tongart uh, assets in Zimbabwe? I'm not very close to it, but I know they've got extensive sugar operations uh, in Zimbabwe. Uh, and coming back to the pick and play issue of Zimbabwe, as you say, on the margin, the delta, from the previous year to this year was a big impact from the Zimbabwe, even though it's a small number in absolute terms. So going forward, I think for pick and pay, it will be more Zambia than Zimbabwe to drive the profitability of the rest of Africa. But Alec, for interest, uh, the one person who hasn't taken part in this conversation is Sean. And I do believe he was born in Zimbabwe. So I'm, I'm yeah, what, what <laughs> quite right. <laughs> you are quite right. Dave. Inside track, Mr. Pesh. Well, I left, unfortunately, we left when I was five years old. Um, so, uh, and I was last back there many, many years ago. But, um, um, but yeah, no, so I... But you always look, was, uh, you always look for opportunities. You're a deep value investor. And if there's any deep value, deeper value than Zimbabwe right now, um, uh, you're going to have to really scratch to find it. Well, yeah, look, I think that's right. But I also think, you know, you've got to, you've got to risk you know, deep value and risk management. And part of that is liquidity. And the liquidity in Zimbabwe is next to nothing. And so, you know, I think I'm right in saying a few years ago, the entire banking system in the whole of Zimbabwe was worth $100 million. I mean, I don't know what the number is now. Um, but, but, I mean, if you buy a share and you get it wrong, and remember, even if you're really good, you know, you'll get six, seven out of ten right. So if you get four wrong, 
and you can't do anything and you lose everything, you know, that's going to make that the problem. So liquidity for me is a big issue. I'm just throwing something else at you. The very best platinum mine in the world on management, on grades, on the, the performance is Zimplatz yep. in Zimbabwe. It is run entirely by Zimbabweans and it has worked against impossible odds. I know that because when you have a look at these uh, Impala Platinum annual report, you'll get the, the glowing reports about Zimplatz. And then when you talk to mining people, they will tell you it's a wonder. Uh, that, the, that this company has done as well as it has. So it shows you that given the right circumstances, the Zimbabweans can be excellent business people and excellent managers. If that can be translated in Tongard Hewlett's uh, regard in, a, in an economy that's no longer destructive, but maybe just, just neutral, let alone supportive, surely you've got a, you've got a wonderful optionality that, that you could be looking at. Well, Alec, absolutely. And I don't know Tonga Archilis at all. I mean, it's 30 years since I last looked at Tonga Archilis. 20 years, sorry. Um, but if, if you've got an option, if you can play Zimbabwe via a, youth, a South African company, which has a little bit of an angle there, like Implast and Zimplast, et cetera, um, you know, then that's an amazing opportunity. So that's, that's how you want to do it, because that, that deals with your risk management. Okay, because if, if, if it falls over, well, it's a small piece of Tongat, but if it comes right, it can move the needle. Uh, B. Chris and, uh, and Jean-Pierre, is that a good call? Yes. I with that, I would put a number, another name in the, in the hat, and that is PPC. And between those, I think one has a choice regarding your Zimbabwe exposure, but my preference would be Zimplatz, Alec. Jean-Pierre Fester, thank you. Chris? If I can just show my age, and we are talking about pick and pay, and we tend to forget after Mr. Brash's tenure that pick and pay really became fraught for a period. It, it went to sleep and became incredibly complacent. And no one confirmed that greater than Wati Basson. I was once fortunate enough to have a lunch with Wati, which went on till 4 o'clock. We, we each had far too much to drink. And he told me ShopRite would never have achieved what it did achieve without pick and pay going to sleep. And that did happen. And when Richard came in, there were some easy wins. You know, their staff productivity, there was a lot of stuff. They were really behind the curve. But anyway, that's just me showing my age. <laughs> but have they caught up now? Jean-Pierre would probably be better placed um, to, to say I wasn't even on the pick-and-pay call. Um, I certainly think ShopRite's ahead of them now with the way they're carrying on, but uh, maybe Jean-Pierre could... Uh... I, I think they've definitely narrowed the gap. Uh, I don't know if pick-and-pay is quite still at the, at the level of ShopRite. There are different ways to measure that in terms of the different ratios of expenses or, or revenue growth. In this period, the like-for-like revenue growth of pick-and-pay was above ShopRite over the same period. So um, if not quite caught up, definitely narrowed the gap. You're listening to the BizNews Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, before we introduce Kevin Lings, uh, Sean, was that your, your, your last uh, comment? You mentioned that book, Good to Great, um, which is an excellent book, and I haven't read it for many years, but I do remember one thing, which is that very successful businesses promote internally. And, uh, and if you look at something like Apple and Amazon, you know, they've all promoted internally. And, and only it works well to promote it from externally if, if the business is, is struggling. And so that's the only thing I would say. And you come back to the culture that Zach mentioned. Um, you know, if things are going right with pick and pay, why did they need to bring in somebody from the external side? So, well, exactly. But now they've brought in someone again from the external side. So Chris Logan, how do you yeah, respond anyway. to that? If Surely one of Richard Brash's greatest achievements would have been to hand over the reins to somebody uh, from internally. It's a good succession planning. You know, I, I, apparently to get a top, top rate CEO who can run a company of the complexity of pick and pay, the guy's got to be highly, highly astute and almost gifted. 
And, you know, we just don't have that much talent in SA anymore. It, it's, it's a sad thing, you know. So I think, you know, certainly when they hired Richard, they were almost forced to go offshore. You know, you don't get great CEOs who, who can turn around a business. There's, there's not many of them. Well, it'll be interesting to see how things go from here for pick and pay. But uh, as you heard from our experts tonight, it's a much happier uh, head office, which is in Claremont. Is that right? Uh, Justin, you from Cape Town? I think so. I think you're correct, Alec. Chris, you would know better. Is it still there in yes. Claremont? Yeah. It's actually, you should know, Alec, it's by the race course. Of course, near Kenilworth, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for giving up another one of my dark hidden secrets. Kevin Lings is now looking at me with different eyes. He's saying, no, no, come on, come on. Anybody who plays on the, on, on, in an industry where they take 25% tax when you put on a pick six has got to have their heads red. Uh, but anyway, Kevin, let's, let's, um, talk about something a little different now, and that's inflation. It'd be very interesting as well, uh, now that we've been doing so much investigation into the food sector uh, to pick up on food inflation too. But the headline number today, it looks real good at, at just over 3%, but reading your analysis, you expect that it's going to head towards 5% uh, over the next few months. Why so? Evening, Alec. Uh, it's, there's, there's some base effects, I guess, at work uh, because last year, in, in essence, the oil price had come down quite substantially. And when you look a year later, the oil price is considerably higher. So I guess that's one of the factors. But remember that uh, we've got an electricity price hike that's still got to impact the consumer. That'll come through typically around about July. Uh, some municipalities take a bit longer, pass it on in August. Uh, if you're a direct customer of Eskom, you've already seen uh, that sort of electricity price increase. So I think there'll be some pressure from that perspective. And then uh, obviously most recently, you'll remember the petrol price went up by one rand a litre. That's still not in, in the number at all. So I think there are a couple of those sorts of areas that will push inflation up in the short term take it to around about 5%. That doesn't mean that we have an unfolding inflation problem in South Africa. It's just suggesting that we've, we've seen the best of the inflation number. The Reserve Bank, I think, responded to that. They cut interest rates fairly substantially last year. But from here, it'll start to move in the other direction. And then I think it'll settle down at around the 4.5%, which on balance, is actually a good outcome. Midpoint of the inflation target, it would suggest that the governor of the Reserve Bank's done his job and that we could enter a phase of more steady interest rates, steady inflation. So I think we've just got to be aware that there are some factors that will push inflation up in the short term. Kevin, I love the way that you unpack things, and I'm going to give you a challenge now, and, we, and then to hear what Sean and Chris think as well. In the United States, they have been creating money at a rate uh, of three times of the supposedly one-off reflation they were going to do after the global financial crisis. For, for, for lay people to look at this and to say normal you know, first-year economics, which is about as far as I got, uh, supply and demand tells you that if there is lots of supply and um, st same demand, then your price is going to fall. Now, if you consider that in an American situation, how is inflation still under control in the U.S. for starters? And secondly, what would that mean for the U.S. dollar? Or is it because it's the world's reserve currency just going to shrug this off? So it's actually a difficult thing to answer emphatically because you're right. It should, in terms of any of the economic models or anything you would have been taught at any year of, of study, uh, once you increase the supply of the currency, certainly as dramatically as the U.S. has done that, you should see uh, the value of that currency weaken, both the internal and external value of the currency. And so you should see the dollar weakening, and you should have seen uh, domestic inflation within the U.S. become quite problematic. And that would be made even worse by the fact that you are increasing the amount of money 
directly to the consumer. In other words, you literally are sending the consumer a check. They can take that check, cash it, and go shopping, and that's exactly what the consumer has done. So this should be um, an environment in which inflation takes hold. There are a couple of things that I think have argued against that. The one is incredibly difficult to explain clearly, and that is the psychology of the dollar. The U.S. has increased the number of dollars in circulation by a phenomenal amount over a long period of time, and yet the dollar remains relatively strong. And if you try to do that, say, with the South African rand, I've got no doubt that the rand would weaken dramatically because you would be flooding the market with rands. And the truth is not that many people would want the rands, and so the value would fall. In the case of the U.S. dollar, people love the dollar. You can, you can offer as many dollars, you can increase it as much as you want, and yet people still demand the dollar. And you can do the test for yourself. Say to yourself, if somebody walked into my house and offered me equal value in a range of currencies, pick any currencies you want, whether it's got to do with the, uh, the Japanese yen or the euro or the dollar or the Aussie dollar, pick any currency. And say to yourself, honestly, which currency would you pick up if you had free choice? And the vast majority of people in the world would choose the dollar, even though the U.S. is printing a hell of a lot more dollars. And that provides the U.S. with a phenomenal strength, a phenomenal power base. And they are using the strength of the dollar to their benefit. They know that they can increase the supply of the dollar and people will still want the dollar. And so they can get away with it. And um, it results in the currency remaining strong and therefore not any sort of imported inflation. Domestically, uh, I guess it's got to do with the competitiveness in the system. That helps enormously. The fact that people's salaries are not going up dramatically, that to some extent has helped. Uh, but it, it remains somewhat of an anomaly and I guess in time they may still have some inflation, but for the moment, yep, they're getting away with it. Phenomenal, phenomenal exercise if you can get it right. Sean, that is so interesting, isn't it? There you've got a country that is doing everything that they would tell us we would be doing wrong. If South Africa was creating lots of money like that, and yet, as Kevin's just unpacked for us, the dollar remains the world's reserve currency. Absolutely, Alec. Look, I, I think you are seeing inflation, but you're seeing inflation in asset prices. And, uh, you know, you're seeing inflation in, I mean, soya prices up 50% and just reading some of the conference calls, you know, Pepsi and Coke and Procter & Gamble and all these companies are talking about inflation um, in their input costs. But if you, think about, if you think about it, what's been happening is people have been getting these checks. They haven't been able to go to restaurants. They haven't been able. They haven't had to spend money on travelling and commuting into into town. They've been a little bit worried about their job situation, so they've been saving it. And so you've, you know, they haven't been. If they were all spending it wildly, well, then we probably have a lot more inflation. But they've been saving it, and where have they been saving it? In equities, because you get nothing in the bonds, and boom, now you've got the equities. So you and have inflation. It's just an equity. And, and houses. houses, yeah, they're buying houses well, in America like it's going out of fashion. Well, and interestingly, I mean, um, I actually think some of the home builders are very interesting. Okay, And you, know, you can buy these companies on nine times earnings, and they've been underbuilding homes for decades in America. But what's interesting is people are now saying that my home is not just the place I live. It's my office. It's my gym. And if I don't have to, I mean, for I live in Woking, if I go into London just to, just to Waterloo, it's 20 pounds on the train. Now, that's without commuting into the middle of London. So let's just say you know, if, you, if, if I'm not, no longer have to do that, and that's 20 days, that's 400 pounds I'm saving. If I'm throwing that at a mortgage, you know, that's, a, that's another good few tens of thousands of, uh, well, a couple of hundred thousand probably in terms of your, uh, your mortgage repayment. So you can buy a bigger house further out. You're not having to spend on, um, on commuting. It's your home, your gym, et cetera. And so that's what people are doing. They're saving for their houses, they're spending. Um, and, and so I think that's where we're seeing inflation. And things like lumber, lumber prices are up a lot. Chris Logan, are you um, looking at the, at the house, home builders uh, in the United States? And dare we suggest it, uh, the construction companies here in South Africa. I see Wilson Bailey, I know it's in our business share portfolio. That's had quite a nice little run. 
uh, of late. It was 80 rand not long ago. It's now at 110. Sure. Um, look, what I do know, all the companies connected to home improvement have had a huge run in yeah. South Africa. Um, you know, what Sean says, though, you know, it, it's got me thinking. Um, yeah. So those are interesting thoughts from Sean. And, you know, it certainly makes sense from what he said to be looking at the home builders. And Kevin, but, you know, all these things are, require an immense amount of research, and there's only so much time in a day. <laughs> Lots of ideas, not always uh, the the time to be able to be confidently following them. Kevin, if you could give our listeners a insight into what they can confidently follow uh, on sectors, given that we now got much more clarity on what's going on with COVID, would there still be here in South Africa uh, a scope for home improvements to continue? to boom in the way that it has. We've seen the Telltale's price, for instance, and then to go into construction, which is the big story, supposedly, for the way that South Africa is going to recover. So I think that I can understand the improvement in, in the building component of retail sales, the hardware sales. I think I think it's actually been global that there's been a huge amount of money going into home improvements. We've also actually seen Furniture sales, appliance sales, uh, being very robust. So there's no doubt that people spent time and money revitalizing their home. But I do think we're getting to the tail end of that. If I look at the most recent numbers, that momentum seems to be topping out. And it suggests to me that in order to get encouraged by that sector, you need to see more fundamental growth. You need to see more employment, more uh, building of houses, all of the sorts of things that you would want to happen in an economy, you would need more evidence that that's happening. So to some extent, this was artificially driven. It was COVID-19 related, and I don't think it necessarily is sustainable at quite the same growth rate. In terms of, though, the, the investment side, I must say there, there are a couple of things that look a lot more encouraging, the noises that our engagements with government suggest uh, they're much more interested in private-public partnerships. If I look at our ability to allocate money into infrastructure projects, that's gone up significantly. Um, and I do think that over a period of time, we are going to see more infrastructure in, coming through in conjunction with the private sector. And therefore, I would be more encouraged by the construction sector in South Africa and perhaps feeding off that, a little bit of employment and a little bit of home improvement. But I'd have to caveat with saying that's that's not the here and now. That's a kind of three-year story. It's not as if it's suddenly going to materialize, and it's all going to take longer than you think. But I think there's something there to be mindful of. And I wouldn't be surprised if construction companies are reflecting some of that positive that's starting to emanate from discussions with government. Leading indicators. That's Kevin Lings. He's the chief economist at Stanlib. Also in the program this evening, you heard Jean-Pierre Ferster, chief executive of Protea Capital Management. Chris Logan, uh, the CEO of Opportune Investments and our guest market commentator tonight, uh, guest co-host tonight, rather, Sean Pesh. Uh, from Ranmore Fund Management. Before we go, Brightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movements in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. The JSE All Share Index was slightly in the green at 67,100. The highlights included Sassel increasing 8 Rand to 233 Rand a share on the back of stronger oil prices. Implat surged 5% to 293 Rand as precious metals producers were up across the board. Naspers and Process were both down on the day to 3,400 Rand and 1,560 Rand a share respectively as Tencent fell 2.2% in Hong Kong this morning. In the US, 
earnings season is well underway, with Netflix reporting after the bull yesterday. The shares down over 7% after the company predicted its worst quarter for streaming growth in its history, with the reopening trade continuing to gather momentum. In the currency markets, the rand was flat against all the major currencies to 14 rand 23 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 83 cents to the sterling, and 17 rand 12 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,791 an ounce. Brent crude is trading at $66 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 800k of Bitcoin. And this market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Thanks for being with us tonight. We'll be back at 5.30 again, same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, from the team at BizNews, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at BizNews.